Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. You're a realist. Yeah. I can't serve everybody all the time, Well, and I also do what I do. It's <laughs> also, uh, I do think that just our growth as artists is um, a compilation of things. So even my teaching, uh, from teaching for now 15 years after singing, for such a long time. I've been yeah. in two years I will have been singing for fifty years. Wow. Right? Even though I'm only sixty-two. Yeah. I I really started actively singing and and studying and stuff when I was fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. And I know I got my first driver's license so I could drive to go to voice lessons. So that so I'm looking at fifty <laughs> years of doing this. But I think it's the same thing for any business that you you're you're not gonna do the same work that you did a year ago and you're not gonna do the same work that you did two years ago right. because you're an evolving artists and yeah. I think it's the same thing for teachers. I, I learn a lot from them ongoing and yeah, you know, so. You know, how, how dramatically different is this teaching world that you're in now versus the performing that you ran around? I mean, obviously there's massive differences between the two, but you know, how is it for you, how's your brain changed how you look at music from when you were consistently performing nonstop all the time to now? predominantly teaching, you still perform. Yeah. Um, but Well, I think that I, I mean, all of my, all of my initial training, even though I studied instruments when I was a child, a lot, of, all of my initial training was theater training. Okay. So from 10, 11, 12, that I was already taking acting classes and doing all that stuff. So yeah. I did, um, when I, by the time I started going to music school, I, had a whole theater background. Okay. So I already had an awareness of how I wanted to look and how I wanted to to think about text and think about things. And I would say the big difference is that I I would say when I was a young singer, I wanted people to hear me and see me. Yeah. And now I want people to listen to me. <laughs> and so it's just it's just a whole different kind of thing and I think the challenge I love I love an audience and I love performing for an audience but I think the the thing I like about teaching is that I think each student is like a Rubik's Cube and for as many of my colleagues say that there's absolutely a set group of and you must do these you know five things to do it yeah I actually think the challenge and maybe it's from my improvisational theater background but I I think it's fun to figure out how to get into that person's head and keep turning the Rubik's Cube to figure out how to say things in the right order, mm -hmm. keep the communication open. So I find it, and I also think that's part of why I find it so tiring too, is that it yeah. feels improvisational to me. Yeah. So I'm not just giving uh, information off of a syllabus like for a course. Right. I'm, You're not just saying follow this equation. No, I'm engaging them as an individual and hopefully helping them develop a technique that's unique to their own voice. Yeah. So my students who are, uh, especially my students who are uh, performing around, all sound very different. So I don't have yeah. a sound in my studio. I think everybody sounds very different and, I, and I, want, I want it to be that way. Right, we want that unique sound personality. That's like right. Those, there's unique tendencies and voices and tones and colors and, no, I, I really dislike that wash of well, and just like you said, this, the aesthetic now, or you just said that you had, somebody had said to you, but I think part of the aesthetic now, and part of it is sound engineering, mm -hmm. that, it, that all of the sound, the, yeah. the instruments aren't, aren't as unique sounding right. to me as they were 
not that long ago. And I remember when I first moved to New York and everyone was saying, oh, the golden age is over and all that. But you could go to the Met on a given night and hear Joan Sutherland and Birgit Nilsson and uh, Leonie Riesenick and uh, Gwyneth Jones and Morella Franey and Renato Scotto. And there was like, <laughs> right? That's and, the group that I consider the golden yes, age of opera. <laughs> but everybody then was going, oh, what happened to the golden age of all the people from the 50s? And you look back now and you, and you think, well, that was a pretty amazing. And people, <laughs> right. and, and actually yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine because I'm a big fan of Roberta Peters. And people used to say, oh, Sutherland canceled, so we have to hear Roberta Peters. Right. And now you look back and go, Roberta Peters was a great singer, <laughs> you know, who sang for decades right. at, at a very high standard. So Not a settle four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. I think, that, I think that you get to a certain point as either a fan of a musical style mm -hmm. or a regular consumer of a musical style. You're like, well, it was always better back at this time because I hear that from every generation of singers. My, my contacts that I know that are well over 70 will have really specific stories about the certain age of singers. Yeah. And the next generation has an age of certain singers. And then, of course. You know, everybody has this one group. And I know that there are certain singers that are singing now that I'll look at as truly great. Yes. But I remember hearing a, a performance that Carreras gave in it's either 03 or 06. Outdoor concert and it, it was outdoor concert in Italy. So we started at like 9 p.m. Because, you know, it's Italy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was relatively on the cool side. And he, it was just a recital. It was him and a soprano. And he sounded unbelievable. Yeah. He didn't sing above a G. Yeah. Because of the situation that he was in. So he knew his voice, knew he was capable of doing it. Nobody cared. Of course not. He sounded phenomenal. Well, and I, I look at that performance as one of those anchor points for what I reference as truly great. Yes, of course. And I think that you can't, um, you can't, the, the impact of a performance or the first time hearing something or the first time hearing somebody like that, you can't uh, replace that no. years later, right? It's like having, um, you can't, as you get older, you can't have new old friends, right? right? You know that that's not going to happen. You still have your old friends. Yeah. Um, one time, I, I mean, this is just a true story that just moved me at the time, um, but I was doing a show in, in Cologne probably 30 years ago. I think I was doing Butterfly, and I had done Count and Marriage Figaro at Covent Garden. Um, I did it at Covent Garden, but I had done it in Hamburg, and it was like an, uh, like an Abend performance where they put a bunch of people in, and... It was Teresa Chilascara, and like it was a really good, a really good cast of people, and some. I think Suzanne Menser was maybe Carabino, and and I was the Count, and so we did it. It was great, and a, and had fun and everything. And a couple of years later, a a guy who was who was a, a stage assistant on the show just came up to me, and I was in Cologne watching from the side of the stage a performance of Figaro and just enjoying Margaret Price, whoever was singing, mm -hmm. and this guy came over and said over my shoulder. You know, I heard you sing The Count in Hamburg a couple of years ago, and it was one of the greatest nights I ever spent in a theater. And he was probably 23, yeah. you know, or 24. Yeah. And of course, I know that, I mean, I was very happy with my count, but I don't think I was like the greatest <laughs> count that ever like walked God's <laughs> earth. But I think that the impact of seeing Marriage of Figaro for the first time yeah. and seeing it in a space with a good cast of people yeah. and a good orchestra, that you, the impact of seeing your first Marriage Figaro cannot be replaced with 
seeing it 15 or 20 or 300 times more. Right. So I, it, it was very flattering that he said that to me, but I took it more as the impact of him seeing Figaro for the first time. <laughs> well, it's totally true. <laughs> but you know, that's one of those things that, that's hard to translate out of opera into other things. Mm -hmm. um, same show, two seasons ago at the Met, I was in the house to see Figaro, and the girls next to me were, one of them I think was going to Manus, and the other one was a friend of hers that was in town visiting. And so she took her to the opera. And the girl who was sitting next to me was probably like 19, at the oldest, yeah. and she had no idea where she was. And I could tell this because she's texting her friends, and we we're sitting so close together in these seats <laughs> that I can read her text messages. And she's like, I don't know, I met, I guess it's the, the Met Opera thing. <laughs> and, and somebody was like, well, what shows? And she's like, I don't know. And uh, she's like, I'll send you a picture because that show starts with the curtain open and the set's right there. So she takes a picture on Snapchat and sends it to her. And then the lights dim, the chandeliers go up, and the overture starts. And there was an immediate look of total awe on her face. Of course. Of hearing a symphonic overture live in the space. Yeah. And so she turned the dimness down on her phone and she held up her Snapchat and she starts live snapping the overture. <laughs> and half of me is going, Can, like, put your phone down. Like, come yeah. on. And the other half of me is going, isn't this really what we need right now? Of course. And then I didn't say anything. She ended up live snapping straight through the entire first act. Oh my gosh. And she was really, really careful to make mm -hmm. sure that people couldn't see it. She, she stopped at the intermission. I think her friend said something to her. But I want someone to be so enamored with the production, no matter yeah. what age they are, no matter how much experience they have with the, with the, the medium in general, yeah. be so enamored with the show, they have to show it off. Of course. And I miss those moments. Like you said, like you get that, you have that once yeah. where you're just floored. But I think you'll have it again, just like um, you said with, with Carreras. I think there's moments, and you still have moments, where you're really, really moved, and you hear something, yeah. and somebody just touches you, or... A lot of it for me is more is poignant. Like I hear things in context of a song I haven't heard in a long time, and then mm -hmm. I hear a young person singing it for the first time, and then it just touches me differently because yeah. I have a different kind of kaleidoscope of emotions than I did when I was younger. Right. So I, yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely love it, and I love the teaching part. I love performing, and I love the. I love. I still enjoy the ego part of it and the and the fast. I like doing fast comedy and stuff, mm -hmm. but um, it doesn't call me the same way as teaching calls me. Right. So let's go way back. So you started in theater before. Yeah. Anything else? Was that? Did you come from a theater family? Like, how did you end up in that? Like, what I, what led you to being on stage in the first place? I mean, it's a really. It's an. I. I'm a spiritual person, but not a really religious person. But I think now, in retrospect, I think I feel like my involvement in the theater is like a calling. It's like what I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, so I'm very grateful to have that. And when I was really little, I was playing with proscenium sets yeah. and building proscenium sets and taking marionettes and making scenic things. And my friends were building go-karts and I was building proscenium flies and, <laughs> and I just was completely obsessed with it really from a very young age yeah and I knew absolutely that I was going to go into the theater and then my voice just kind of took over my life yeah um <clears throat> but I would have I wanted to be a triple threat I tried to dance that was hopeless I so I did all of the acting stuff and I had really um a perfect storm of great good fortune 
because I'm from Washington, D.C., and I was going to a school that was downtown, and somebody just said to me, oh, you know, you should just, I was in high school, and they said, here's a flyer for Wolf Trap, you really should audition for Wolf Trap, and so I was like, <laughs> sure. So I went in and I auditioned for Wolf Trap, and it was my first time at the Kennedy Center, and I was in, I think, dress, maybe rehearsal room one, and it was for John Moriarty, who wound up being my one of my great mentors, and Frank Rizzo, who was running Washington Opera, but he happened yeah. to also be involved with Wolf Trap, and I didn't know that. There was just two guys, right? And so I just went in there and sang for them, and Moriarty said to me, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 18, but I'm gonna be 19 in April. And one of them, I don't, and I still, because I'm friends with both of them, I still don't remember which one said it, but one of them said, oh, that makes all the difference, right? <laughs> but because I was still living at my parents, and I got, and I did that, and then I met, you know, Beverly Sills that summer. Mm -hmm. I met uh, Tito Capobianco. I met all these people who were great influences. And um, a lot of these people really helped me a great deal. So I went to Boston and started school there. And then I immediately, almost immediately started working. A very good friend of mine, who is a soprano named Janice Hall, um, helped me get an agent. She I went to hear her sing Rigoletto in San Diego. And she just told Tito, she said, you really should hear this friend of mine. Mm. And even though I had met him when he was doing Traviata at Wolf Trap, he, you know, I, or vice versa, it was one, I don't remember the order of those things. Yeah. Right <laughs> but um, he just, he and I, you know, became completely enamored with each other. And he gave me a, a six-year contract and I sang it. So that was my Young Artist Program. Wow. I just kind of skipped the, but in the 70s, the Young Artist Programs weren't established the way they are now. Right. No, it was a totally different, uh, a totally different path. Yes, and, and and a completely different institution. Yes, than it is now. And I went with John to two summers at Central City, and I audited that summer at Wolf Trap. That summer I auditioned. Mm -hmm. They said, you know, we're we don't really think we can give you a full position in the Young Artist Program, but would you audit? And I was like, okay, sure. So I met all the coaches at the time, uh, Ben Malensic. I like all these people who are still coaching that yeah. I met at that time. So it really was just like a perfect storm. I was I was ready because I'd been practicing and studying theater and my music. And then it just went like, pfft. so I got busy very fast. Yeah. How much performing in the States did you do before you started performing regularly overseas? Um, or did it kind of, did you do kind of them simultaneously? I would say I started overseas really early. Yeah. Like I um, got, I my debut in Europe was in Pearl Fishers in Paris at the Châtelet. And it was probably 1981 or something. So I think I sang in San Diego the first time in 78, so I was mm -hmm. 21. Okay. So I maybe I was 23 or something when I sang in Paris. Yeah. And um, very shortly thereafter, I went to Hamburg. So for all of the '80s, I balanced both. Uh -huh. But I was really busy in the, I was really busy in the States and singing a lot in Chicago and San Diego. And I was very fortunate because I had a big success in my hometown. So Washington was yeah. I sang nine operas there or something, and the first one was The Barber of Seville, and I had a really big success. And uh, fortunately. 
I mean, really, that's why I say it was really just like good fortune. Yeah. And I think I'm talented and everything. It's not like I don't think that I, <laughs> I, I don't think it should have been anybody else. I was happy it was me. Right. But I, in retrospect, I think, oh my God, this is just so good, you know, such good luck. But I had a big success doing that. They asked me back for the following year. And I would say for, as a teacher now, I see how lucky I was that the, my first big theater, Marcello, was in San Francisco. Mm. And within a year of that, I did, with, with Mary Jane Johnson, was my Musetta in San Francisco. And I did San Francisco, Chicago, and Toronto. And within less than a year, I had 30 performances of Marcello under my belt. Wow. And that was probably 80, I don't know, maybe 82, 83, 84, like in, somewhere in there. Yeah. But it was all within a year that I had those performances. Same with Barbara of Seville. I did 12, maybe 12 or 13 the first time, and then Washington revived it. Mm. So in a year, I had 28 performances of Figaro under my belt, nice. and I just started getting farmed out to places because I could jump in. Right. And with uh, improvisational thing, I could be thrown into productions and right. did, did really well doing that. That's one of those things that I think, especially young singers that haven't had the, the tried and true career yet, they see this whole concept of, well, these companies keep hiring people that have already sung the roles. Mm -hmm. And I could sing the role, but there's a strength and a solidity that the opera company knows and can expect when you've done that role a ton of times yeah. and they can just drop you in it. One of, my, um, one of my friends just recently did a production in Italy of uh, Barbara Sanguardina, mm -hmm. and she didn't get any stage rehearsal time. She came in last minute to, to pop in and cover for somebody else, came into town, and she said she was backstage and was like, what door do I go in? What yeah. But the, she knew the music, had performed the music a bunch. She, the role was there. I, that prep was taken care of, but she's so strong as an actor and as a professional yeah. that they can drop her on any stage, and she's ready to rock and roll. Well, and that was the, you know, the system then was actually really good for an actor. Like if everybody knew their roles really well and you put everybody on a relatively traditional set, mm -hmm. every, you are, you're forced to listen to each other. You're forced to watch what other people are doing. Yeah. You're forced to be really active and reactive. Yeah. And there were some really, uh, honestly, really exciting nights. I understand why directors want to rehearse something for two or three months and then have the same packet of people do all the performances yeah. to maintain their their artistic integrity over, over the production. But those jump in things are really super fun. And if you get, I mean, another way that I was fortunate is that if you get a hook, like I got uh, Barbara of Seville, I had a success with Barbara of Seville. So ultimately I did over, like over 225 performances <laughs> the Barbara of Seville. And I sang it everywhere and I got thrown into it. And if you get, if you're a person who gets a hook like that, like Denise Graves with Carmen, yeah, uh, Mary Jane with Fanchula, um, you know, you get, you get a hook and you get known that way. And then companies are likely to give you an opportunity doing other things. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was really, really lucky with that. And also because it was DC, that very first time I got a review in the Herald Tribune because it was in the Washington Post. So everybody in Europe read this review. It was before, <laughs> before the internet, and so, so and I was twenty. I was twenty-two years old or something, and it was like, okay, that happened, you know. And uh, so, good fortune has a lot to do with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What are you performing now these days? What do you? Um, what are your venues that you're? Well, you're I, doing just did, it's, I just did. I just did. 
the old guys in Boheme, uh, yeah. Benoit and Alcindoro. And I did them last year in Victoria, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I just did them with Vancouver Opera this year. Nice. And I still, I've done Aegeist. I would love to do Aegeist again yeah. in Electra. And there's a few character parts that I'd like to do. But I spent most of my 40s trying to look like I was in my 30s and going to the gym and working out and doing all of that. And now that I'm 62, I'm happy to play maybe 10 years younger than me yep. <laughs> or 15 years older than me, but I'm really not going. Uh, and I broke up with actually one of my agents because they, uh, this particular lady really saw me as those, you know, those young guys. And I'm like, no, really, it's just... <laughs> It's not ha it's not happening anymore. As flattering as that might be. As flattering as that might be. So I'd love to have a go at the mayor in Albert Herring. I'd love to have a go. Yeah. I would still like to have a go at Herod in, in Zalame. Yeah. Um, I just did a couple of years ago Dead Man Walking and did Father Grenville and I love doing that. And so it's difficult in it's difficult in my voice type with character repertoire mm -hmm. or character fa because I I still have a, a stentorian a voice mm. that's dark that doesn't really lend itself to Basilio or something like that. Right. So I just have to pick and choose and if something comes up, but really I'm, I have an academic position too. So I do have a full-time job as right. a, at a university <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> and, and I'm doing more recitaling and stuff like that too. Yeah. So. What are some of these, the, the differences you're seeing in what it was like performing in the 80s and 90s versus what it's like performing now? Like, what are some of the changes that the, both in the opera houses and the rest of the cast members and how shows are treated? Is there a, a really big difference in basically how opera was treated in the 80s and 90s versus it is what it is today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge difference. The, if, if you find like an antique, you know, an antique version of Opera America, for example, you would look in the back cover and you'd see three pages of opera companies, you know, yeah. or three pages of little tiny type of lip dozens of opera companies. Yeah. And people had a chance to go and try things out. So mm -hmm. if you, if, you know, if you went to a, a smaller company, even if you were singing regularly in a large company, you could go to a smaller company and try things out and you could get a kind of repertoire going. Yeah. And now I think it's really, it's also equally difficult for directors and conductors to get to take chances and mm. to take, um, you know, to take an artistic uh, version of something and really take a chance because the theaters want successes that are going to, you know, m make enough revenue to cover their their expenses. Yeah. And it's the same thing for singers. You don't, you know, people work and work and work and maybe when they're thirty eight or forty get a chance to do their their first countess. You know. Yeah. And, um, and then three years later, they're a little bit too mature to be singing Countess anymore, you know? <laughs> and, and that's just a shame yeah. uh, that there isn't more opportunity. Yeah. So the people who are creating opportunities for singers uh, to perform um, are really uh, people that we need to value and support because we need, we need more of that. Yeah. Um, I know I said to you earlier, I think it's also changed because um, if you're not multitasking, if you're not marketing yourself mm -hmm. in a certain way, and you're not teaching and promoting your own projects and developing your own projects, yeah. and writing, I spent a lot of last year writing a libretto for a song cycle to get a composer to do, like doing all of that stuff that doesn't initially um, 
bring in any kind of revenue. Right. Um, but that's one of the luxuries that an academic position gives you, right? Is that you yeah. actually have time and hopefully some access to funding that you can do things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think everybody now has to be good at promoting their own, their yeah. own market, their own product for the market, and how they're perceived by the market. Every soprano I know has to develop her own projects, and yeah, you know that that's that's had the big way how it's changed. I think. Yeah. I tell. I mean, I've, this whole time I've been here at Taos, and any time that I work with younger singers, if they're not getting involved in new music. Mm -hmm. get involved in new music yeah work with composers and librettists and put out premieres even if it's a small song cycle or whatever for a couple of reasons number one it's a great networking tool mm -hmm. number two it keeps you performing keeps you sharp and number three in the states that's where the grant money is right the grant money is in new music nobody is really funding unless you really have a, a very specific donor base or you're phenomenal at fundraising yeah um the easiest money is in new music. Uh, I, I mean, I've seen projects where there were three shows and two of them were classic right. opera repertoire, but the operating budget for the entire season came from the first one, which was a premiere. Right. And that's where it was. Well, and they just, they, they have to do it. It's also just so good for their skill set. It's yeah. not only do they, are they forced to be creative, but they're forced to be creative in developing something that they haven't listened to 10,000 times on YouTube. Exactly. So they don't have a fixed idea of how they're supposed to fit into this. They figure out how to work into it, mm -hmm. into a project. And then when you get one of these big war horses and you're looking at something that's 300 years old, you, you actually find yourself in the work. Yeah. And then it's a different thing. When I was in my 20s, and looking at new music, it always scared the hell out of me for exactly that reason. Mm. Because I started playing piano when I was eight-ish. Um, took classical piano, jazz, played a stack of instruments, was a session musician, all that kind of stuff. And as a contemporary musician, especially as a session musician, you learn so much by ear mm -hmm. that I immediately took that and dropped that into opera, which right. can be a strength. It can also be a huge crutch. So when people would approach me with new music, it freaked me out. It's like, I don't have anything I can, I can't base this on anything. Well, And exactly. I have to learn all this counting myself. Yes. For real. Like I had to sit down the and piano. bang these notes That's out. right. Just to like an old, like in the olden days. And it's really a very good, it's a very good study for them. And yeah. also they, they may not think about it, but to have access to actually talk to Jake Heggie, or actually talk to Ricky Gordon, or actually talk to the composer who's developing this project that yeah. you're working on. You can't do that with Verdi or Puccini, yeah. you know. And we can only guess or read or you know listen to old recordings to get an idea of what we think that they. Right. Want I mean, we to. can we can always, you know, go to the student of the student of the student of this person. Right. And we follow that kind of that paper trail of, well, this is the way they actually That's did right. this. Well, and I do tell people, go back and listen to Toscanini because at least he was in the orchestra pit at the Met. Damn straight. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and the fact that Toscanini did all those recordings for RCA yep. in the 40s, yep. go listen to those yeah. and listen to people who sang the roles. The but, you know, I house. met, um, I was up working with the resident artists at Minop um, while I was up there to see the world premiere of The Fix. And uh, I had a couple of friends in the cast, so I wanted to go out there, and everything kind of worked together. And it was a good working weekend, um, and I got to meet Joel Puckett, the composer, and, uh, and 
Timothy Myers was the conductor for that, and he's done a ton of world premieres. Premieres are kind of his thing, mm -hmm. and he loves working on new music, and we talked a lot about that. Um, but I know talking to the cast and Joel and Tim that there was an ongoing musical dialogue, and the show was getting tweaked constantly. And part of it was because they were trying to make, make it really click with the singers, mm -hmm. and you know, certain things didn't work in the orchestra, or once everything was actually put together on stage, stuff needed to have an evolution of its own. Yeah. And then in the last dress rehearsal, they cut a whole chunk from act two, and so they stayed late and they reread it, and then the next time you saw it out there was the premiere. Um, but there was the dialogue with, with Joel. And the same thing um, for Marnie. You know, Nico was really, really involved with the whole process, and I know talking to uh, Chris Maltman and Isabel Leonard, they had ongoing dialogues. Of course, with with this because there's an evolution to the piece and being part of that evolution. Of new well, music and that's is why they so used to special. do out of town tryouts. You know, they used to do yes. them <laughs> before before this media thing. Yeah, they used to take things to Boston or Washington D.C. <laughs> and like cut them up and run them and then like take them to New York when right. it was when it was a fixed package. It's like a soft open. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but like you can't do that anymore, right? No. So and once it's out there, it's out there. But that, in a way, is kind of a shame. I think. Yeah. Uh, there's no. There's no trying out things before you like <laughs> what you go out there and you go into the biggest venue with the you know the biggest people and yeah that's that. You know? I mean we have the workshopping process, <clears throat> which is nice, but it's not the same thing. No. So you know I was at the the third iteration of the workshop for the Copper Queen, which is um, I think Arizona commissioned it for 2021, um, and the composer Clint Borzoni and the uh, director and librettist John Del Santos are both friends of mine. So when I found out they were actually doing the final workshop in New York City at Opera America, I was like, I need to be there for that. I want to yeah. check this out. I want to see it. And so, you know, it's a concert version, piano version of, of the opera um, with a small audience to kind of get the vibe. And they do the Q&A afterwards and people can make suggestions and talk about what they felt about it. But that's still not the same as the premiere performance. No. It's where really you actually have a real audience that's giving on the fly audience feedback but via applause no, and, and the energy on stage. I mean the way that they're they the way that they have to workshop things now, even on on Broadway, the way they workshopped Hamilton, the way they workshopped uh uh the 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 Wizard of Oz one, which I can't remember what it's called. Wicked, right now. Wicked. Yeah. Like years of the planning and yeah. years of the. It took them forever to get Hamilton going. So by the time it was actually a thing, it was a tightly running like Rolex watch, right? right. But that's only after years of trying out. Yeah. So I think that um, I think there's still work being done that way, but it's not the big opera venues are looking at lots of different ways of marketing and for sure uh, selling their product yeah so as you're obviously well aware the demographic that <coughs> listens to this podcast is predominantly uh, young singers and opera nerds mm -hmm. um as somebody who's had a substantial my people your people <laughs> that's right <laughs> also my people uh since you you've had a substantial career and you're still performing now and you're teaching now as well. Mm -hmm. You have multiple perspectives that are, that are invaluable. What is kind of, what are some insights to young singers that you can give that are universal when it comes to time? The same stuff that was important to, for you in the, in the 80s that's also important to them now that they need to not lose track of. Well, I think that you have to 
um, I, I mean, I talk about this to a lot to my students. Um, you have to get your mind around this idea of prepared readiness, like like the military does, and just be ready, or a firehouse, to be ready all the time. Mm -hmm. So you have to enjoy the work for the work's sake, yeah, and not be so goal oriented that you only you're only frantically memorizing something like you're cramming for an exam, right? <laughs> so and that's very hard to get young people out of the mindset yep. <laughs> that they're just cramming for their exam at the end of term. Right. You really have to just work, and you have to work out. You have to take care of yourself. Uh, and whether it's yoga or, or any of those things that you did, I loved. I used to love going to the gym, and I did all of that during the really active portion of my career. I was very uh, aware of how I needed to look and how I needed to present myself, and coaching and singing, even when I wasn't performing. Mm. Um, so I would just say that prepared readiness, being ready for the call when the call comes. Um, you know, when they say, you know, what is luck? It's when you know practice and. Practice and good fortune cross the <laughs> right. path, and, and good practice, and and I think that that's when I was when I had that luck when I was younger. It was really already, even though I was young at the time, I had already been working for six years doing this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I would say, and the only thing that I, I not that I would change anything, but the big mindset that I would have had differently was that I would have not been so myopic. Mm. But I was also very fortunate that I. Had lots of I had lots of opportunity to perform, and people were hiring me to perform. Yeah, but now in retrospect, I think I would have liked to have taught the entire time. Teaching was always my ultimate interest. Okay, and I think that the um, I would have taught the whole time. I would have maybe produced more of my own projects, but I was a for hire person. Right. So I loved directors, and directors loved me, and so I liked working with directors and and acting and theater things yeah um so i would just i i would advise people not to be so myopic that they're you know or what they think success is i think working in the business is success yeah yeah that's one of those things <clears throat> my last day of classes here like my last session that i have with everybody we do i hit social media we talk about ideal networking practices but one of the things that i hit this year that I didn't hit last year and I wish I had and it didn't it didn't come to me literally until about two weeks ago while I was prepping to come here was that we had a real talk about what success means to them right and that you know as a singer like we want to be like I want to sing on the Met stage okay well, then, yeah that's a form of success but yeah. there's a long road there and if you find zero success between where you are now and that you're going to die somewhere along the way. Yes, that's right. Or what happens, like I remember a conversation I had with Tito because he was the first person to hire me for Barber of Seville even though I did it somewhere else first. After that, he offered it to me first. And I was also doing Pearl, Pearl Fishers in Paris. And I said to him, and I was like 21 years old, I said, these are like two of my big dream things. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> you know? And he said, well, you get new you got new dreams, you know, you start dreaming new things. But so what do you do if you decide that, okay, my, my face on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine is success. So if you attain that, then what, then well, what else? What do you do? Then what do you do? Do you retire? Yes. Or do you right? move on? And I moved on clearly when I was 21. But you have to be really specific. And I think that everyone, you know, uh, if you, if you, def if you um, say that you're a singer, and you wind up teaching, you're a musician and you're working in music. Yeah. 
right? So yeah. if you're working in the business, you're successful. Yeah. Um, even if you're not that person singing that particular cadenza at the end of that aria, in that, so you have to be really, I guess, specific, but you also have to embrace the successes that you do have. Right. Yeah, 100%. And everybody, and I say this to, the, to participants in summer programs, everybody who's at a summer program um, were accepted from a pool of people that not everyone was accepted. Yeah. So you're already, um, you're already on the island of misfit toys with the rest of us. Yeah. Because you chose not to go on your camping retreat. Right. You know, you're actually at opera camp. Yeah. Or you're in a young artist program. Yep. Or you're, you know, so you're joining, you're joining us and already an elite group of people who are amongst these opera yeah. dudes. Right. And I flat out told them today, I was like, the, the fact that you're here today talking about this is a success. Yes. Right there. That's there right. are other people who are not here today that wanted to be. Hmm. You are. That's right. That's a success. And if you don't want more, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Absolutely. Like you have to want more. You have to want to improve. You have to want to get better. Yep. You have to want to do more challenging parts. They don't necessarily have to be bigger parts, but more challenging yeah. parts. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you just need to want more. You need to see that as soon as you get over that mountain, you have to be at the foot of the next mountain and climb the next yeah. mountain. Um, so that's just part of Armenia. Yeah, it is indeed, <laughs> indeed a mania. Even for those of us who are not presently singing in the industry, but still working in it. It's right. Like I said, I've tried to leave this industry four times and I keep getting sucked back into it. And yeah. I have an adoration for it for what it is and it's unique and bizarre mania. I, I adore it. But, but we can all say that, right? I mean, I can say the same thing. In the last five years, the number of opera performances that I've done um, have been few and far, fewer and further between. Yeah. So, but two weeks ago, I recorded a recital and am editing that. Mm -hmm. And I also have a video content. I'm sorry to say this in your presence, but I actually have video <laughs> content I'm supposed to be editing in my free time. And I have this <laughs> all this fancy editing equipment that I'm trying to figure out how to use. Um, but so, yes, that doesn't make me any less of a singer because I'm no longer singing the Barber of Seville. I've right. been singing the Barber of Seville since 1992 or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's how you define yourself yeah. and where you're performing or where you're working. Those those ladies who work and teach music in church basements are just as much of a musician as I am. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to touch on the video editing thing real quick. I've told a couple of people recently, in this day and age where media needs to be so prevalent and such a there's such a turnover of like being able to put media out quickly mm -hmm. and well, um, I tell people if you have any way that you can learn how to edit video or edit photos a little bit and be responsible for some of that yourself. It means that you can take a performance that you may have a full, full length feature <laughs> performance. You can cut that down yourself. You don't have to pay me $65 an hour That's right. to cut it yourself. That's right. You know, just learn how to do it as a professional. It's less difficult than you think. And if you are already the musician, you are intuitive as to where cuts need to be. That's right. And that kind of stuff. And then just hone those skills just a little bit. And then, then you're, more of an asset to yourself. Right. And, uh, you know, so you spend $200 on a program one time. 
that means you don't have to spend two hundred dollars every time you every get time you done. do it. Well, and I just from the perspective of a person, and I just want to say again, I'm only sixty two years old. So when I say what I'm about to say, it doesn't make me sound like from when dinosaurs walked the earth. Back when dinosaurs walked the earth, but in high school, I took a, vi an, a sound editing course. Yeah, and it was wheels yeah. of of tape. Yep, and we we laid it out with uh, razor razors, and yeah. you actually physically cut the tape and then yep. taped the tape back together and tried to play it in a way. And really, um, the one that I just got, which I can't remember what it's called, and anyway, it's a podcast, so I guess I won't say it. But the, vid the video editing thing I just got for my Apple is so much easier than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Seriously. It has gotten much easier. And also for a lot of, for a lot of the older music nerds there who, are, who might be listening, um, it is technology is so much easier now 20 years on than it was when it first came out it's much more user friendly now. that's it right there it's the user friendly nature of things the yeah. interfaces are, are much more intuitive that's right now than they have been in the past yes it really <laughs> absolutely is you gotta wait for the new tech to come out and then hang on the market long enough that everybody wants it and then once everybody wants it they find a way to make it easier to deal with but you don't lose the processing power behind it. And I am, I am living proof. I survived my screen going into safe mode many, <laughs> many times years ago. And, and, I, and, I, and I lived to tell the tale. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, because you've, you've sung a little bit of everything, in your personal music history, all-time favorite roles or favorite performances? Oh. Of, um, your, of your own that you've been a part of wow well i was a i was a baritone for 15 years and i've been a tenor ever since then so uh -huh. maybe 25 years or something so hmm, i would say it was i would say it was really fun to sing lucia in central park with alfredo kraus and mariella devia and have a huge thunderstorm breakout <laughs> And after my duet with Lucia, they had to actually stop the performance. So it really was like Enrico Di Lucia, or D D Enrico Di Lammermoor. Um, <laughs> and they were all really nice about it, but it was Paul Plischke and, and Alfredo Kraus and Mariela de Villa and me. And uh, that was 100,000 people running soaking wet from, <laughs> from Central Park. That was exciting. But I, I would say I, I, liked, I liked doing roles multiple times. I felt, as a baritone, I felt really... I don't want to say attached, but I'm like Rodrigo and Don Carlos. I mm. was like him. I felt, even though I enjoyed doing Figaro and, and those characters, yeah. I had an affinity for his character and his conflict and the political conflict that he was in. And as a tenor, I would say, um, I mean, I would, I would give up all everything I've ever sung in my life to have sung Tristan, and I did. And I sang 25 performances of it. It took me two years to learn it. And it was a huge, just emotional journey for me. Just the, so I would say I'm very, I have a great affinity for, for Tristan. Mm. Um, but I think Don Jose, I had the most moving performances doing Don Jose. So as a tenor, I did more Jose's and Floristans than anything else. Okay. And, um, but actual like individual performances I don't know. There were lots of lots of things that were really so. It's 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 hard to say. I loved singing. Yeah. I loved singing at the Met. I have to say, I sang Manolasco at the Met, and I got to sit in a little tiny carriage, um, knee to knee with Morella Franey, 
next to Italo Tayo to make my entrance in that on a, in a real carriage draw, by drawn horses. By drawn horses. That was pretty exciting. Nice. Um, just to sit there with her and say, you know, in Boca Lupo to her and her go, you know, just nervously, just <laughs> nod at me. Um, yeah, so I'm very lucky. I had, I had a lot, I had a few of those things. Um, Let's, uh, yeah. let me chat about that. I mean, you're, you're somebody who had success both as a baritone and a tenor. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many, we're so, in the U.S. especially, we have that mindset of you have to fit into this box of a voice right. kind of thing. You know, what, what drew you to that voice change, to that Fox change? Um, and was it, was it a natural change for you? Was it something that like kind of an internal struggle that you fought with and then kind of like landed on the correct sign of tenderdom or? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, business wise, it would have been much easier for me to just stay a baritone. Yeah. Right. So that, like I just say that up front, it would have just been easier if my voice had just dropped. Yeah. Um, and cause I knew Pasquale really well and I knew Dulcamara really well and I knew Alfonso really well and all of those. So I kind of thought that was like the natural progression. But my, and I, even when I was a teenager, I was switching back and forth between baritone and tenor. Okay. And I um, actually hurt myself. So or I felt like I hurt myself. Uh, and I was like, okay, if this is, and at 17, I had the wherewithal to think, um, this is my life and I'm not going to let anybody mess with me. And I'm a baritone and that was it. And I never addressed a conversation and anybody who had tried to talk to me about it. Yeah. Um, and even um, maybe 10 years later than that, I was doing Onegin in Washington Opera with, John, uh, with Giancarlo Del Mo No, no, Menotti. Menotti was directing. Yeah, yeah. And he said to me, well, are you a tenor yet? And I completely blew him <laughs> off. I was so angry at him because I was singing Onegin. I wasn't singing Lenski. I was singing Onegin. Yeah. And I was like, I'm a baritone. I'm a baritone doing all that. So clearly, this is why I'm yes, here. <laughs> so a few years, yes, I'm I'm your leading man. Um, so a few years later, I was doing Traviata in Lausanne with Roberto Lania as my son, and uh, it was one of the first times because I had sung Traviata quite a bit already at that point, and it was one of the first times I had a tenor of that caliber that I felt like I could have any kind of father son. He's not even ten years younger than me. Yeah, but. I was still only 30 or something. Yeah. And he was maybe 23. And he had just had a big success at La Scala with singing that. And I sang the aria and I thought it was pretty well one night and, or that it went well and nothing, dead silence. So I got really angry and he's sitting there, you know, being upset about, you know, what I had just said to him. And when the baritone's supposed to go, que dici que ferma, I got mad and I walked straight down stage and I said, que dici que ferma, to a B flat. And I basically looked at the audience and I sang the B flat while the curtain was coming down. And the audience went nuts. They applauded through the scene change. And I'm back in my dressing room and Roberto came to me and he said, you're a tenor. I don't care what anybody says. You are absolutely a tenor and don't think about anything else. And and it, and it was funny in retrospect because I was I was upset during that production because things that had been easy for me ten years before that, like pura si come un angelo in the duet with her, I really had to really work and just kind of work and warm up and be in a different kind of way. My voice just mm. wasn't cooperating, mm -hmm. so I went to my teacher who had been my teacher at that point already for about ten years, uh, Armin Boyajan, 
and I, and I basically was like, okay, we have to break up because you're a baritone teacher and I'm a tenor. And he was like, why do you think I don't work with tenors? <laughs> you know, so, and it had never occurred to me that we didn't have to break up. And then I sight read through the third act of Otello, the first act of Valkyrie, uh, Florestan's aria, and with like no, really no problem. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, this is happening. And he sat on me and said, okay, you have to study Don Jose and you have to study, you know, certain things. So I followed, completely followed him. Yeah. And, uh, but it was because, so the, the short answer is, is that it was really because my voice was settling upwards. Yeah. And I, I think now I was smart enough to follow it and not try to make it stay someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. In my mid thirties, I completely switched and had this whole other repertoire and and I remember some I remember that that year I had like I think Maria de Rudens like the things that were offered to me were really just like or more Traviata's more fa Traviata father or something and then on the other hand I had prospects for Captain Veer which I still have not done but I <laughs> I wanted to do but I had prospects for Captain Veer for Don Jose for Sigmund for Parsifal and I was like <laughs> Okay, like how, what's to choose between this? Right. Um, and I do, I kind of, I think, I feel like I have to say, there was one point somebody said to me that you, we often inadvertently benefit from other people's suffering. And totally. there was a guy that I just adored his, adored him and I loved his work named uh, Chip Ellsworth. And uh, he, right at the same time as I was switching, he passed away from, uh, leukemia I think and I got three big contracts bang 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 because Chip's wife was now a widow and his children no longer had a father so I think that as you whenever you get those opportunities I think you have to be grateful because you have to go okay I something good just happened to me but it's you know it's impact on the the world that we live in it costs something else someplace else so right. you have to be grateful and go forward and yeah and um you know embrace that 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 costs somebody else maybe something right right is there anything else you can think of to cover i don't we think went, so you covered the fach change <laughs> i was glad you asked about that because nobody asked me about that so it's nice but you know that's that's one of those things that you know i i lived in a, a state of limbo for a long time mm -hmm. um but there are so many people that deal with a fox change, mm -hmm. and they're either scared of it or they don't know how to dialogue through it. Right. Um, well, and it's it's more. Ch I mean, it's challenging in a different way. More challenging, but more challenging, I think, for men because we're such either or people, and yeah. really, the business basically says you you are either this or that. Right. And there's lots of really smart women who walk the line in second soprano between first soprano roles and mezzo-soprano roles, and they just don't throw the gauntlet down one way or the other. Right. And, and it's really, they're very smart that way. Yeah. And it's, they can do that, but we really can't do that. Um, one, I mean, one of the things about being a Taos that I think is, is interesting, not, not just because I get to work with old friends, but Faith Esham and I are both people who did Fach changes successfully. I didn't know she went through one as well. She was a mezzo. The first time I heard her, she was really having a very big career singing Carabino, and she's the first Hansel and Hansel and Gretel that I ever saw. 
Um, she was, I also saw her do Cendrillon in Paris, that when I was doing Pearl Fisher, she was in, she was doing Cendrillon. She was filling in for Frederica von Stade. And Faith had a really established career as a mezzo and then became a soprano and did Mikhail and the Carmen movie yeah, with yeah, Domingo yeah. And, and had a really That's successful what I always career. Knew her I didn't know that she had a mezzo. Yeah, she was a mezzo, a mezzo bef career. before. And she was a very, very sexy, compelling carabino. And I still tell her that to this day, <laughs> even though that was, we, I was technically still in high school when we met that summer at Wolf Trap. So I, I still tell her to this day, you know, you were an awfully sexy carabino. Um, and yeah, so it's unusual because a lot of people, I don't know if it's just not, it's timing and luck and so many things too mm. with it, but uh, I would just say that that's something that Faith and I have in common is that yeah. we both made that change. We both made that change after having success in one area and then yeah. both of us have had success in the other area yeah. too. So, I mean, I, I was definitely very mindful of like I took time, I took two years and sort of carefully went into higher, almost exclusively higher repertoire. And yeah. I spent each summer for, I think three consecutive summers working with Armin just on the tenor stuff. And then I started doing a cycle of auditions for people and getting work and stuff. Yeah. So I was careful and I, and I, got, some, I got some offers really right away that I um, didn't take because I thought it was too f sudden. Yeah. So like Lohengrin and and was was offered to me right away, and also Bali Mas. You want to just fall ass backwards in the Lohengrin? I know, and I was like, <laughs> no, I think I have to like do this. I don't want to do Lohengrin next month. And I actually, I mean, I knew for lots of reasons why it was not a good idea, but I had a nightmare. Honest hand to God, I had a nightmare that. I was surrounded by everybody in the finale of Lohengrin and Elsa and Kate, all of them were like looking at me um, or whatever, Orchard and they're all staring, looking at me and 15 miles away I could hear. And I'm thinking, after singing for five and a half hours. And I woke up in a cold sweat and I called my agent and I'm like, I'm not doing this. You know, I'm not doing a new Lohengrin in a month. Yeah. Um, but there were plenty of people who did that and plenty of people who had successes doing that. Yeah. And, I, and I was like, no. I was much more interested in, in still being able to sing in my 60s than I was in, in getting a big bang success <laughs> right yeah. really fast. You know? But yeah, that's, that's why I like to talk about Fox changes because they work differently with each voice. Mm -hmm. And just as you said that each, each student is kind of a Rubik's cube mm -hmm. that you have to figure out. I feel like anybody that goes through a Fox change or has any kind of shift in their voice and they change rep, it works differently for each person. Right. And you have to kind of figure out what works for you. Yeah. Is an immediate, somebody flipped a switch and you do this now, or do you take some time working it so that you're comfortable and then you're comfortable and confident to take the next role in the new voice. That's right. And I think it's, that's, a, that's a dialogue that I think a lot of young singers need to hear. Yeah, and they also have to, they have to know enough about singing and know enough about their own instrument to listen to their own instrument yeah. and be able to feel what feels right. I, mean, I was honestly, I was surprised that Benoit Alcindoro felt as good as it did. And it, I was like, okay, this is happening. And I, <laughs> and I still have a low extension, but I can't, I can't live down there, but I can make noise down there yeah. now and then. Yeah. Um, 
but that's fine. I really like when you're hanging out at 9,300 feet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so those guys are fun, and I, yeah, I have no intention of I have no intention of stopping performing, but it's not the thing that I'm seeking out. And I just want to say one of the things I'm thinking about when you talk about Vincent and also Miss Harshaw, who I only just met. I didn't know her. I didn't study with her. But she had a roster of people that all had extremely different voices. Yes. And it was one of the things about her studio that I always admired was that it didn't seem like there was a cookie, any kind of cookie cutter studying going on. Yeah. And if you look at even just Kevin Langan and Sally Wolf and Vincent Cole and the different people who studied with her, all of these unique personalities and all of these unique really sounds. And I think that I don't, um, I don't feel ownership over my students now. Mm. Like I'm happy that I was successful as a singer and I'm happy that that happened. And I don't feel like at this point in my life, I'm, ma I'm making a success off of the back of my singers, right. um, who's, or this, my students who study with me. Yeah, I yeah. call them my singers. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm very proud of Ian Burns and being in Santa Fe. I'm very proud of Spencer being in Glimmerglass. I'm proud of my students who are successful. And I know it reflects well on me because I, I just do. Mm -hmm. But I, um, uh, I, I'm, I don't feel like I'm trying to build something off of, off of their success. Yeah. Yeah. So letting them be them for who they are as a performer and who they yes. are as a singer. And, and I say to them, you take, I had plenty of people try to take credit for my success when I was work, when I was up there and my sweat was on the floor. Yeah. Um, and so, and so I, I'm very, I'm very careful not to superimpose that onto my, yeah. Yeah. my students. That's super important. Thank you very much. Thank for you very much. Taking the time to do this. this it was is, fun. It is. It's great. And you know, it's nice to be in this, I love being in this atmosphere now. Of For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com slash guests. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel wherever podcasts are heard for two new episodes every month. Follow us on social media as well. Instagram at operabiz and Twitter at operabizpodcast. Thanks for listening.